This is the Thorn Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at Thorne and Functional Medicine Doctor. And I'm Dr. Frank Lipman, New York Times bestseller and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of Thorne. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Thorn Podcast. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? How are things out west? Uh, things are good. The air is clear. Um, the smoke from our fires is blown away. We had a big snowstorm that seemed to put the fires out. So, um, so we're, we're in a much more optimistic place than I've been in past podcasts. Oh, great to hear. Winter is coming. Good. So, so welcome, everybody. And uh, today we're going to speak about gut health, the essential ingredient in so many people's health. So let's get going. Bob, I'm sure you find the same thing, but in my practice, the gut is where I often start um, treating patients. And, and what's interesting, you know, that, that's in a way a functional medicine approach, but that's actually an old tradition in, in almost most medical traditions. I got taught many, many years ago um, by an herbalist who said, um, when you don't know what's going on, treat the gut. In Chinese medicine, um, when you know the gut is the earth element and i was also taught when you're not sure what's going on the earth is the center treat the earth element so it's interesting that even in in western medicine and functional medicine for sure we are we have realized the importance of the gut and keeping that healthy and it's being a factor in so many diseases we see today um, so what's what do you what do you say to that, Bob? Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, years ago, when I was in training, uh, more years than I'd like to admit, I heard this uh, famous naturopath named Bernard Jensen. You probably know Bernard Jensen or knew him when he was alive. Um, he uh, he gave a lecture and uh, you know said a lot of things that I thought were very interesting about how to maintain health, but it seemed to me that he was really obsessed with his bowels and with intestinal health. And at the time, we didn't have all this research on the microbiome, right? So, you know, it, it kind of sounded like folk wisdom, et cetera. And now the science has really come to support that perspective. So the science now shows that there are almost as many, if not more cells in our intestines as there are cells in our body. In other words, they're, they're more of them than there are of us. So it really calls into question who we are as human beings. If we have all these tiny little microorganisms that are living in our intestinal tract, what are they doing there? And how are they, how are they influencing our overall well-being? Exactly. And I think 
um, and we'll, we'll take it further. When we feed ourselves, we need to think about, you know, we're feeding ourselves, but we're also feeding those little critters in our gut and, <laughs> and how important that is. Yes. And, and you know, what's, what's amazing about, you know, what we're finding out about the microbiome uh, and how it affects, you know, from your brains to your hormones to every aspect of your being. It's, it's um, one of the functions that, that I never realized how important it was until fairly recently is how it protects that very thin layer of our gut wall. You know, yes. you know the gut wall is so important to protecting, it's, it's your internal skin, to protecting your, in, your internal organs from the external world. It's like your skin. And what an important function the microbiome plays in protecting that layer and keeping that healthy, which is sort of, you know, not spoken enough about. I mean, we talk about, yes, it makes vitamins and it makes hormones and it makes the neurotransmitters and it helps you digest and et cetera, et cetera. But its role in protecting um, that, that uh, very delicate lining of the gut, I think is so, so important. So if, uh, if, if you follow the analogies that, that, uh, that are out there in the medical literature, the lining of the gut, if you stretch it out, is about the size of a tennis court. Right. You know, and that, so that whole tennis court, it a very, but it's a very thin surface tennis court. So here's this tennis court that is completely bombarded with food. I and mean, how much food do we eat in our lifetime? A ton, a couple of tons? literally tons of food are coming through that intestinal tract all the time. And, and that the thin surface is all that separates that food and the microbes that are lining the gut from our bloodstream, from the inside of our body. So we really need to protect that layer. Now, I want to ask you about something that's fairly new in the research or fairly new in, you know, everyone's talking about the gut now, but not enough people are talking about probiophages or phages in general and the importance of phages in the microbiome. So do you want to just talk a little bit about the phages and what they do in, in, in their role in, in protecting the gut wall and 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 other functions, because I think phages are going to be one of those things that um, we're going to be hearing more and more about. Okay, so what are phages? They're viruses, and they're specifically viruses that attack bacteria. So they're, the technical term is bacteriophages, um, and, and when these viruses attack bacteria, they do all kinds of things, but uh, one thing they do is they inject some of their genetic material into the bacteria. And so if you're talking about the gut, what that amounts to is a huge gene swap, right? And, I, I, and I've joked about this sometimes that there's a big gene swapping party going on. Um, so bacteria are in the gut are exchanging genes all the time and they're doing it through this vector, through this medium of these bacteriophages that, you know, will will latch onto one bacteria, inject the genes, then that bacteria sends their genes to another bacteria. So that's the first thing these bacteriophages do 
is they, they kind of regulate genes that are being swapped back and forth. Why would anybody care about this? Uh, because if a person takes antibiotics, then a bacteria can develop genes that allow it to become resistant to those antibiotics. And a bacteriophage can come along and pick up those genes and then transfer them to other bacteria. So these are called antibiotic resistance genes, aptly enough. And they've been found in all kinds of places like sewage, right? And why would they be in sewage? Well, if you put antibiotics in animal feed, then the bacteria in the intestines of the animals can develop these resistance genes. Then the phages can pick them up and the phages end up in the sewage that's coming from these animals. And then that can contaminate the water supply, especially if there's flooding or if the, the, the sewage is not contained. And this has actually been shown many, many times. It's not speculation. So what that means is that the more we use antibiotics if we put them in animal feed or we give antibiotics to, uh, to little kids uh, for a bad cold, then we're inducing production of these antibiotic resistance genes. And then the phases are allowing them to become widespread in our environment. So that means a person who's never been exposed to an antibiotic can have antibiotic resistance genes in their intestines and they can get them from phages. So that's just one aspect of phages. The other thing is the phages actually control the types of bacteria that are in our gut. So we, we talk about this concept of dysbiosis, which is a, an imbalance of bacteria. What controls that? Well, there are a lot of things that have an influence like your diet, but the, the, the quantity and quality of phages in your gut which is not insignificant. There, you know, there are millions of these, these, these viruses in the gut. They're actually having a big influence on what kind of bacteria a person has. And, and they've done studies on inflammatory bowel disease and found that there's a major disruption in the bacteria and in the phage concentration in the gut. So people with Crohn's disease or inflammatory or ulcerative colitis, both inflammatory bowel diseases. Right. And I think that sort of, you know, brings me to the point of, you know, we used to think that uh, in the in the early years, probiotics were the answer. So everyone got probiotics and we thought we'd correct the dysbiosis or the microbiome with probiotics. And then we realized that, you know, that's literally a crapshoot and, you know, probiotics help some people do nothing for others and actually cause some people to get worse. So then we got onto the prebiotics which are probably a safer thing to do because the prebiotics are feeding, you know, the bacteria. So we got this- They're food. Their prebiotics are food. Right. You know, the fiber in the food. So we got into this thing that, right, prebiotics are really important. Probiotics could be important. But now we have the phages, which is, you know, this whole other level. And, you know, the more we learn, the more sophisticated we're getting with being able to actually target a dysbiosis instead of just throwing probiotics and then prebiotics. I love this concept of, you know, the combination of phages and prebiotics and probiotics, which I know you've worked on this Effusio product, which intrigues me um, quite a bit. So can, can you 
just talk to us because that is a prebiotic, probiotic, and phages all together. Okay, so what what now you're addressing is the the positive side of phages, which yes. is you know the opposite. So I was talking about the negative right. side of phages, what right. you got to be worried about. The positive side is that there are phages that that have been carefully studied and they need to be carefully studied because you don't want to be introducing any of these antibiotic resistance genes or other harmful genes, but there are phages that are known to be beneficial. And, and this appears to be a coming thing. There's a couple of, of, of uh, nutraceutical companies that have already introduced these over the years. You know, so far we've not, heard anything that suggests that these would be harmful, right? The, the experience that people are having with these phages are by and large beneficial. So it's, you're right. There can be problems with probiotics. I, you know, I've, I've certainly taken probiotics myself for years and recommended them for years, but I've also seen patients like somebody I saw yesterday who said, every time I take a probiotic, I get gas and bloating. I just can't tolerate it. And we don't have a good way to predict who those people are that are going to uh, have that kind of adverse reaction. So phages represent a new possibility, a new way of approaching these people that are really sensitive. There's no reason at all to expect that the phages would cause these kind of problems that you see with probiotics in some people. So the, the, the early data that's coming out um, suggest that they're much better tolerated and they may be a, a, a new approach, a third wing, you know, probiotics, prebiotics, and now phages. Yeah, and my, my experience has been, you know, because I do see a lot of, a fair amount of people anyway who have a negative reaction to probiotics. Not severe, but as you say, they get a lot of gas and bloating. It's usually people who have yeast or some mm -hmm. severe dysbiosis. And what yep. I've been, you know, what I do all the time in my practice with huge success is I don't, you know, probiotics I don't give for a while. I, usually I'll start with antimicrobials, you know, whether it's, you know, antimicrobials like grapefruit seed extract and berberine and um, some of the oils. What I also do now is, you know, I'll, I'll give antimicrobials and then I give phages. And, you know, the, you know, whether it's in my head or not, you know, I see phages as not only as an antimicrobial in a way, but it's also protect, protecting the gut lining. And I've actually, you know, this is still early and still anecdotal, but I've been getting fantastic results with just antimicrobial and phages. And then much later on, you know, reintroducing the prebiotics and probiotics. And that seems to work with a lot of people, especially when they have severe yeast or severe bacterial overgrowth or any, you know, when there's a severe dysbiosis. So you really like starting, so you're, you're making the case to start yes. with the phage, that it might be the gentlest approach out there. Yeah, I start with the antimicrobials, but now I've been adding the phages to that i've always not always but for many years just started with antimicrobials and then into you know first at least two weeks sometimes a bit longer and then start introducing whether it's glutamine or or other ways of of helping the gut but now i add phages in and you know people tolerate them well and you know 
are they getting better anyway because of the other antimicrobials? I don't know, but it seems to be, you know, good. And that's why I'm quite intrigued by this new um, Effusio product, which, which, which combines all three. I mean, I do think we're going to get to a place where we'll be able to target people's guts and what probiotics, what prebiotics, and what phages to use. I mean, that would be the ideal world. How far we are from that is hard to say. You know, is it years? Is uh, you know, probably many years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, do you um, do you follow this notion of the four R? Now it's the five R plan that that I think Jeffrey Bland. Um, kind of put together initially and now is a functional medicine, part of the canon of functional medicine, the replace, repair, uh, restore, re-inoculate. Do you, do you find that a useful thing? Yeah, I think it's a useful way of understanding or explaining to people, but I, I always will start with, um, yes, replace, with antimicrobials. My first step is usually you know, because most people either have SIBO, I don't even have to test them. You can assume they have SIBO or some dysbiosis. So my first two to four weeks is always uh, a mixture of some antimicrobials, you know, a couple together. And why it doesn't, it's very rare that it seems to be a problem. I mean, the antimicrobials, obviously, theoretically, you always worry, well, you're killing, you know, all back, is, is it like an antibiotic where you're killing all good bacteria as well. I very, very, very rarely see a problem from it. Some people may get some stomach cramps or, um, it, you know, sometimes with, um, with uh, some of the, you know, the products, they'll get some extra gas or some reflux, but not that common. So I usually start there. I don't use hydrochloric acid and enzymes that much initially but you know when i need to i do but i usually start with antimicrobials then go on to more of a repair uh, part and then maybe i'll use if necessary um some some uh, enzymes or hydrochloric acid and then only at the end will i sometimes use probiotics okay so here's a question for you that and this comes up a lot people frequently ask me if you're going to give something like berberine, which you know is one of my favorites, um, well, berberine is an antimicrobial. It's, yep. it's natural, but it's still an antibiotic. Um, here we are saying antibiotics are bad and you should avoid them. And yet we're also giving people a natural version of an antibiotic. Why is that okay when an antibiotic is not okay? What's your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, now that's what I was saying earlier. I'm not sure why it's okay, but I, you know, after so many years of using these herbs, I don't, I very, very rarely see a problem. I, yes. Very rarely. I, I mean, to be quite honest, in the 20 years I've used it, one person got C. diff. Whether it was from that or not, I'm not sure. I, I doubt if it was, but you know, you know, maybe six weeks or eight weeks later, I got a call to say he went to see his GI guy. He got C diff, and it was from what I gave him. But after many, many years, I'm not even sure that was the case. I've, I really, really see problems. So I'm not sure why it doesn't, why it doesn't seem to have effects on the on the good bacteria. They seem to just, or who knows, but they definitely um, 
seem to help people's gut problems? Well, I get, I've taken berberine myself for many, many years, and I've had my uh, intestinal microbiome tested multiple times, and there hasn't been any sign of a detrimental effect from the berberine. So I, I, I've heard other practitioners say, oh, only use berberine for a few weeks, maybe a month, and then stop. But berberine has all these other benefits, the, as we've talked about, the anti-aging benefits, the blood sugar lowering benefits, and you have to take it for long periods of time to get those benefits. Yep, and I, I agree. I take it every day too. I wish we had more time here, but now we've got to take a short break and then go into some listener questions. Aging is an inevitable process, but there are things we can do to help us age better. That's exactly what my outstanding co-host discusses in his latest book, The New Rules of Aging Well, a simple program for immune resilience, strength, and vitality. In this beautifully illustrated book, Dr. Lipman unveils a simple program to ensure that your body ages as healthily as possible with simple, practical, and doable tips based on ancient wisdom and backed up by the latest science on longevity. Dr. Lippman helps identify lifestyle changes that will significantly improve your natural aging process by optimizing fitness and rest, dietary habits, and focusing on inner health and deeper wellness. Whether you're 25 or you're 65, this book should be essential reading for those interested in building better immunity, wellness, and longevity. The New Rules of Aging Well is available in hard copy, ebook, or audiobook. Order your copy today by visiting drfranklipman.com. That's drfranklipman.com or through Amazon and other major book retailers. Okay, folks, we're back. Now it's time to answer some questions from the community. Our questions this week come from listeners who ask, do the bacteria in your gut control your brain? Well, I wouldn't say they control your brain, but they definitely have a huge, I would say a massive influence on brain function. And they do this multiple ways. Uh, a number of years ago, I had the pleasure of hearing uh, Dr. Michael Gerson, who wrote the second brain right. talk. And, and he is a neurologist who actually looked at the, the microscopic connections between the gut and the brain. And what he found is that there are more nerves that are going from the gut to the brain than the other way around. So the simple nerve firing that goes on in the gut that leads to the brain, that has an influence. But then the bacteria that are in the gut make chemicals that then go into the bloodstream and can get across the blood-brain barrier and into the brain, or they can go through a big nerve called the vagus nerve. So it can be a chemical reaction or it can actually be a nerve firing connection uh, whereby the, the gut affects the brain. And they've done a lot of animal studies showing that you can change the microbiome in the gut and that will influence behavior. Right. It's, the uh, question is, if, if somebody is depressed or anxious, yep. 
you know, and then they have a irritable bowel. Well, why are they depressed or anxious? Is it the irritable bowel that causes the anxiety or is it the other way around? Exactly. It's, it's, as I always say, there's a direct highway between the gut and the brain, which is the vagus nerve. And I've seen this over and over again, because I often start with treating the gut. Um, and people come in and they don't really come in because they're anxious or depressed, although that can be a symptom. They come in because they bloated and gassy and can't poop and they have gut problems. And, you know, I've been told they got irritable bowel and you start cleaning out the gut or treating the gut with the antimicrobials we were talking about. And lo and behold, the anxiety and or depression gets better. So it's a, there's no question there's this major connection between the gut and the brain. And in fact, I've seen more and more papers in psychiatry that talk about you know, treating the gut first for anxiety and depression. So even psychiatrists are starting to acknowledge this connection and the importance of, of treating the gut and correcting gut health before they even start going to uh, antidepressants and, and uh, anxiolytic drugs to help um, with anxiety and depression. If you think about it, it's really kind of a, a crazy assumption that the brain is somehow separate from the body, which right. is what, you know, more conventional psychiatry was based on that notion that the brain is somehow sitting in its own box. Right. <laughs> that it's not influenced by your overall health. And, and that just, you know, that's getting thrown out the window. Right. And um, if you even if we have a National Institute of Mental Health, which is completely separate to the National Institute of Health, which is quite inter interesting. <laughs> yes. But, but here's another question from uh, <clears throat> one of the listeners, which is a follow up on what we are talking about now. Does your gut produce serotonin? I, so that, that's important. So you want to address that, Bob? Yeah, I, my understanding is that about 90% of the serotonin made in the body is made in the gut. There, and there's some, so there's a lot more serotonin made in your intestines than is made in your brain. Um, and the, the question is, where is that serotonin being made? Most of the research points to uh, these cells called EC cells, enterochromaffin cells that line the gut as being the major producers. But there's also suggestions that there may be bacteria that make serotonin. So there, there's no question that serotonin is emanating from the gut. We just don't exactly know all the sources of it. And I suspect it's both. It's pretty clear that certain gut bacteria can influence serotonin production, even if they're not making the serotonin themselves. Right. And the other way around too, I've had a few patients come in and tell me that they've tried 5-HTP, which is a precursor to serotonin for gut problems, and it has helped their gut problems. So, you know, I find that quite interesting. I mean, I've, I don't really use 5-HTP for gut problems, but I have had a few people come in telling me that taking 5-HTP has seemed to help their gut problems. And it makes you wonder uh, about the serotonin drugs like Prozac. Are they working mainly in the brain or are they somehow influencing the gut, which then influences the brain? Uh, it's not entirely clear. Well, that's all the time we have, folks. Thanks for listening, Bob. Once again, thanks for all your insights. It's always a pleasure to chat to you about all things, especially all things health. Till the next time, take care and stay well. 
Till next time, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Thorn Podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at Thorn Research. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorn's Take 5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in and don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.